Welcome back to the Real Women's Health Podcast. Today's episode is about leaky bladders, also known as urinary incontinence, which affects 30% of women after the age of 30. Today, I'm joined by my University of Miami colleague and bladder super expert, Dr. Catherine Amin. We discuss what's the difference between stress and urge incontinence, what can you do to decrease your risk of these bladder problems, and what are treatment options for those that experience these symptoms. Stay tuned for our episode number 10, Urinary Incontinence, aka Leaky Bladders, with Dr. Catherine Amin. Why do I have this T-shaped uterus? Excellent question. The vagina is a powerful machine. A vagina is glorious. glorious. And it's entertaining and fun, too. Because I know what's inside of girls like you and like me. Now it's time for the physical examination. Let's go take a look at your Volvo. Well, that's when we take a new baby out of a lady's tummy. Your symptoms sound hormonal to me. I'd like a second opinion. This seems very questionable. 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 I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, and this is the Real Women's Health Podcast. Welcome back to the Real Women's Health Podcast. I'm super excited today because I have my good friend and colleague here with me. Dr. Catherine Amin is a board-certified female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery urologist at my home institution, the University of Miami. She grew up in Western New York and completed a urology residency at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City and then went on to complete a two-year fellowship in FPMRS and trained with both urologists and urogynecologists. She specializes in pelvic organ prolapse, urinary incontinence, which we're gonna talk about today, minimally invasive surgery, including robotic surgery, neurourology, fecal incontinence, transvaginal mesh complications, and obstetric fistula. So she helps women with a lot of really important problems. So. Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kristen. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you all today about this important topic that is near and dear to my heart. Well, I'd like to start by telling our listeners what is an FPMRS specialist and how um, how did you get here? Why did you decide to do this? And how long did it take you? Sure. So. Uh, FPMS is, uh, stands for Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery. Uh, urology and urogynecology have, each have their own specializations uh, with, this type of, um, with this type of field. Um, but for, euro, for urogynecologists, um, they are OBGYN trained and then move on to do a uh, three-year uh, fellowship after um, their OBGYN training. Uh, and uh, very similar to what I do as a urologist. So I did a five-year uh, re- urology residency and then uh, with an additional uh, two years of fellowship training. And then I uh, went on to take my um, boards in urology and FPRMS. Um, so in 2011, the, the urogynecology and uh, FPRMS societies joined forces. And so um, now um, it is, um, they joined specialties and that's why it is called female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. So here at University of Miami, we have, you know, um, I have colleagues of urology background and of urogynecology background, and we offer very similar, similar expertise. Wow. That sounds like you have a lot of expertise in some important problems, but so you see both male and female patients? 
I do. Uh, I do see um, especially uh, male's neurourology issues. So that would be um, spinal cord injury patients, or um, particularly for male avoiding dysfunction. But I also, I, most of my practice is concentrated on females. So mostly uh, female uh, pelvic floor uh, disorders, um, such as prolapse or urinary incontinence. That's amazing. And so you see patients in the clinic, but then you also operate on them because this is actually a surgical subspecialty. So would you say you like divide your time 50-50? Correct. Yes, I would say that it's about 50-50. And uh, this is a specialty that can be that transcends from medication to non-surgical treatment. And then it can cross over to surgical, surgical intervention as well. That's great. So let's talk about today's topic, which is urinary incontinence or leaky bladders, right? Mm -hmm. Start by telling us what is urinary incontinence, who gets it, how common is it, and just tell us more about it. And so I think it's important first to talk about the normal bladder, and then we can talk about um, what can happen or what goes wrong with the bladder. So, uh, so in general, the urine is made in our kidneys. Um, so those are, you know, two organs in, um, in our back uh, behind our ribs, and it filters out all of the blood, and it make and the kidneys make urine. And then uh, that urine is transported um, down to the bladder, which is a organ that is uh, behind the pubic bone in the pelvis, and uh, and also. Um, the bladder is a muscle, but it actually is a storage center most of the time. So 90% of the time, the bladder should fill up like a balloon and expand and hold or store urine. Uh, and it should uh, truly only squeeze, the bladder muscle should squeeze when the brain tells the bladder to go ahead and squeeze when we're sitting on a toilet. And, uh, and then um, that coordination occurs. So the pelvic floor muscles relax, and the bladder muscle squeezes, and then we're able to empty your bladder completely. But one thing that can go wrong is either um, overactive bladder, so um, this means that the bladder muscle is squeezing too much, and it's not really storing urine uh, the way it should. And uh, so that means many women have symptoms of urinary frequency, urgency, where they have to rush to get to the bathroom. They can't hold it for you know more than anywhere from 30 minutes to 60 minutes. You know, women are constantly feeling like they have to get to the bathroom. And that can be associated with leakage as well when you can't make it to the bathroom and you have an accident. Or the other type of uh, leakage is something called stress urinary incontinence. And this has to do with more of the pelvic floor muscles have become weakened or stretched um, due to trauma or um, poor genetics and poor collagen. And then women have experienced urinary incontinence or leakage of urine uh, with coughing or sneezing or lifting heavy objects. So which is more common, stress incontinence or urge incontinence? That's a great question. So unfortunately, stress urinary incontinence can uh, affect up to 50% of women. Um, so it, it really depends on the severity. So if, if some women just experience a little bit of leakage with very full bladder and they have a, they laugh really hard or they have a big sneeze or they just have um, several sneezes in a row with a common cold, then they have leakage. But studies have also shown about 17 to 20% of women experience overactive bladder. And in general, unfortunately, 
women can experience both because you know they are not the same. They're urinary leakage um, from different mechanisms. One is from the um, bladder not storing urine well, and the other one is from the pelvic floor muscles become weakened. So some women, up to 30% of women with urinary incontinence can experience mixed incontinence, which means that they have both leakage with coughing and sneezing, and then also urinary frequency and urgency and that feeling of got to get to the bathroom. For stress urinary incontinence, it doesn't really have anything to do with just being stressed out. It has to do with the weakening of the pelvic floor muscles, right? Right, right, yes. So stress urinary incontinence, that is the term that we use, but actually um, the reason why we use that term is because of the increased abdominal pressure with coughing or sneezing, and that creates stress on the pelvic floor, and the pelvic floor uh, muscles are too weak to withstand that stress, and then you have that leakage. So when does this problem usually show up? Like, can women of all ages get this, or does it only happen to our grandmothers, or how does this work? So that's a great question. So in terms of stress urinary incontinence, this primarily affects women um, that have had previous, that have carried babies in the past. So many studies actually show there's no difference for um, stress urinary incontinence with vaginal or C-section deliveries, even just carrying a baby for that 10 months can create a lot of stress on your pelvic floor and predispose women to stress urinary incontinence or the leakage when you cough or sneeze. But overactive bladder tends to happen in older women. And that is because the mechanism behind overactivity and um, the bladder being irritated causing the urgency and frequency is related to the nerves and the communication between the brain and the bladder um, are just not working um, the way that they should uh, when we're younger. And as we age, um, the communication between the, the brain and the bladder is not as well coordinated. Wow, so I have so much to look forward to in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, the the purpose of this today is really just for education where I think it's truly important for women to know that there are ways to help um, and there are treatment options. Uh, So this is not something where, you know, a lot of women just, you know, experience these symptoms, urinary incontinence, and they just say, oh, okay, well, this is just because I'm a woman, I had babies, and you know, this is just the way it is. But there's definitely treatment options out there for you, um, so you, don't, you can have an improved quality of life. You don't have to deal with this all the time. Yeah, and don't have to suffer in silence, because probably a lot of women are pretty embarrassed about these mm-hmm. problems, right? Definitely, definitely. So do not be afraid to talk to your primary care doctor, talk to your girlfriends, you know, talk to anyone um, that you can about this. Uh, you know, so you can get linked to the right specialist and um, some of the expertise to treat this. What are some risk factors for developing either stress incontinence or urgent incontinence or overactive bladder? Sure. So some of the risk factors certainly are genetics. So number one is if you talk to your mom about um, urinary incontinence or talk to your sisters. But if you experience it, it's likely that you know someone in your family also experiences it as well. And that has to do with, especially for stress urinary incontinence, the way our tissue is genetically made up of collagen and you know our, mu- our muscle strength in the pelvic floor. Uh, that is the number one risk factor. Other risk factors would be um, how many babies you've had, you know, how many pregnancies you've had. Whether they, again, like I said, whether they were uh, vaginal or C-section actually does not necessarily predispose you um, more so. And then overweight, 
Um, so of course the first treatment would be, you know, first recommendation um, would be to, for weight loss if the patient is overweight. And, and then uh, chronic lung diseases like COPD or smoking are also all risk factors for stress urinary incontinence. Is smoking a risk factor because you're coughing all the time or because smoking does something to the collagen in your body? Both. So, you know, you, for smoking, you're putting a lot of pressure on your pelvic floor um, with the coughing. Um, but it does make, you know, the, the pathophysiology of smoking and tobacco use really um, do influence the, the musculature um, and our collagen and make the, make the tissue weaker. So there you go, ladies. One more reason to quit smoking. <laughs> Definitely. So how do you treat it? Let's start with stress incontinence. So say you have a woman that comes to your office. She's had three babies. She's in her early 50s, and she has leaking with coughing and sneezing. How do you approach these patients? Sure. So actually for um, urinary incontinence, our guidelines are pretty standardized in terms of um, first, second line, and third line uh, treatment options. So first steps for stress urinary incontinence, of course, you know, like I mentioned before, is weight loss or um, smoking cessation, kind of those behavioral modifications that we can make. And then after that, we go into non-surgical and surgical treatment options. So in terms of non-surgical approaches, we recommend either pelvic floor physical therapy or pelvic floor muscle training, which is similar to Kegels. I like to say that they're advanced Kegels. We actually have women go see a, a pelvic floor therapist, which is a, a physical therapist for the vagina. And they teach you amazing techniques of how to strengthen the pelvic floor to prevent uh, leakage when, when you cough or sneeze. Other options would be a vaginal insert or even a pessary. So a vaginal insert is that you can even get something over the counter. Um, it's called the poison pressa. And uh, this is a non-absorbent tampon. So it actually changes the angle of the urethra and kind of blocks the opening of the bladder with this tampon does that prevents the leakage with coughing and sneezing. A lot of women use that if they only experience leakage when they're exercising or when, they, when they're dancing. And uh, so in order to go to that Zumba class, they put in, they put in the, uh, the poison press and it's very helpful. And lastly, another option would be a pessary, which is a disc-like silicone device that we can measure and fit to your vagina. And what it does is it also blocks the urethra to prevent the leakage with coughing and sneezing. You can put it in and take it out yourself and um, very easy to use. Lastly, for surgical options, uh, one option that has recently come to the, um, onto the market in the U.S. is a filler. This is a urethral bulking agent and uh, it's been used for many, many years in Europe called macroplasty. A lot of uh, physicians are or a lot of surgeons are using it now uh, in the United States. It's great because you um, see good effects with the, with the filler up until seven years. So this is a really nice procedure. There's, it's just an injection, like we um, use a filler in our lips. Um, we can inject our, um, the opening of the um, bladder and we make the opening tighter with that injection. Um, so there's no incisions. Um, it's a very easy recovery. You can go and um, back to work the next day. No uh, restrictions, restrictions in terms of heavy lifting or sexual intercourse. Or the other options are slings. So we can either use a mesh sling or a 
on Talgus slings. So a mesh sling is a piece of tape that we can put into the vagina that creates a little hammock or a backstop for coughing and sneezing to prevent the urinary um, leakage. And this is a very small, minor procedure. Usually it takes about uh, 45 minutes in the operating room. It's same-day procedure. You go home later that day. And it, is an, it does require an incision in the vagina. And that being said, uh, we do recommend no, to avoid heavy lifting and to avoid sexual intercourse or anything in the vagina for about six weeks after that surgery. But it's very effective, and it actually has been shown to be effective up to 20 years because that mesh is permanent. And lastly, we can use an autologous sling, which is a, a sling um, that can be made uh, from your own tissue. So you can use your own fascia or the strong, uh, the strong tissue that's either uh, that makes up your abdominal wall um, or uh, the strong tissue that's on your outer leg. And we can use that um, to place underneath the urethra to, pre to prevent the leakage with coughing and sneezing. This is used primarily in women that want to avoid mesh. That is an amazing summary. Some of those options I'm not even sure were available when I was in residency. I'm super impressed that we can use fillers for urethra. They're so handy, so many different <laughs> options. But it's not the same type of filler that you would put that someone would put in their face, right? It's a different material. It's not. It's okay. It is different. Uh, this is a hydrogel, actually, that is very well accepted into our tissue uh, and absorbed, um, and it is long-lasting, like I said, up of up to seven years to see that benefit. Nice. What about urge incontinence? So a patient comes to you and she, you know, can't go on road trips because she has to go on frequent bathroom breaks and she, like, anytime she hears water running, maybe she feels like she's got to go and got to go right now. Like, how do you approach those patients? Yeah. So that's a great question. Again, we have uh, this is a very standardized approach for overactive bladder as well. So the first thing that we would recommend would be um, just to kind of change your diet and a little bit of your behaviors and um, daily activities. So number one is to avoid bladder irritants. So things that irritate the bladder lining are things such as caffeine, uh, carbonated beverages uh, with bubbles, spicy foods and things that have a lot of acidity to them. So any lemons or limes can all irritate the bladder lining. And uh, the next recommendation that we usually tell patients is obviously managing your fluids. So, you know, some women like to drink up to three liters or four liters of water per day, and you know, you don't need necessarily to drink all of that water. That's going to cause you to need frequent trips to, to the bathroom because your kidneys are making more, uh, making more urine. So just trying to manage your fluids a little bit better. And um, there's also bladder training exercises too. I also um, encourage patients to see a pelvic floor physical therapist, again, to uh, be educated on different exercises that we can use for the vagina um, to suppress those urges that we get. So, uh, and you know, the second line therapy would be medications. You know, you change your diet, um, you go to the physical therapist, you do all these things, um, and that doesn't do the trick and you're still you know, running to the bathroom constantly. So the next thing uh, we would recommend is medication. So one medication is to relax the bladder. So the reason why patients are having this overactive bladder is because the bladder is squeezing too much. So we can give medication to help relax the bladder so it can store urine better. And you can hold urine for longer periods of time. So there are two types of medications we offer. Uh, one is an anticholinergic. Um, these have been around for many, many years. 
you know, examples would be oxybutynin, tolteridine, trospium, and the benefits is that it does decrease the urge and leakage episodes every day. And there's really no difference in the efficacy or the benefit of each medication. But unfortunately, this type of medication can cause dry mouth or constipation. Uh, and there are some studies that show if patients are on it for long periods of time, it can cause uh, dementia. So, you know, this newer type of medication, which is called a beta-3 agonist, has come out on the market. And there's two types now, mirbetric or mirbegron or viabegron. And uh, these are great medications, uh, very little side effects. And again, it does decrease the urge and leakage episodes every day. But we do recommend it reacts on di different receptors than the anticholinergic medications, so totally different set of uh, side effects. And we do recommend uh, patients to monitor their blood pressure at home. Very small studies have shown there, it can cause an increase in blood pressure. But in most patients, I've never seen this happen. And in most patients, uh, um, they do not experience this at all. And lastly, so, you know, medications don't work, um, then we can go on to surgery and more invasive options. You know, that means surgical or more invasive options either in the office or outside of the office in the operating room. One option would be uh, injecting Botox into the bladder. Yes, we can inject Botox into the bladder, not just the forehead. And this, you know, as many of you know, Botox is used to relax those muscles. We actually just, it's, what it does is it frankly paralyzes the muscles. So we're not completely paralyzing the bladder muscle because we're just doing very precise injections. But what it does is it, it makes it so that the bladder doesn't squeeze, squeeze as often. Botox only lasts for about six months, so women do have to get repeat injections, but they're very happy. This is a in-office procedure. Um, we just do it with a small telescope camera and a needle, and it, the whole thing lasts about two or three minutes. And then lastly, which is super exciting for us, is something called a pacemaker for the bladder. And this does require an operation, but the benefit is that these newer batteries for this pacemaker can last up to 10 to 15 years. Uh, so there's non-rechargeable or rechargeable uh, batteries, but the purpose of the pacemaker is to target the nerves. It's a pacemaker that for the nerves in, in the back, and we're targeting the nerves that communicate between the brain and the bladder so that you can hold urine more efficiently, and it, it truly uh, modulates the nerves so that it's working together with the brain so that you can hold your end, like I said, better and pee more efficiently. Wow, a pacemaker for the bladder. That is amazing. What will they think of next? And we're using Botox in the bladder, so that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. What about vaginal estrogen? Does vaginal estrogen help with any of these issues? Yes, so vaginal estrogen is is obviously so important really for most if not all women after menopause to replenish the estrogen and create a healthy environment again in the vagina and that is you know due to the estrogen loss that we have after after menopause when the ovaries stop making estrogen and the vagina interestingly enough is very sensitive to um, the loss of estrogen because there's a lot of estrogen receptors in the vagina and if you think about it, if you're lying down, the vagina is a long tunnel, and the bladder actually shares a wall with the vagina. So the bladder makes up the roof of the vagina, and the bladder is very close. It's 
one of the walls of the bladder is part of that vaginal skin. So if the vagina is unhappy after menopause, then that makes the bladder unhappy and it causes a lot of urgency and frequency. So most studies show that if we give estrogen cream for the vagina or local estrogen therapy, women actually have improved urinary symptoms for overactivity, less urinary uh, frequency and urgency. That's great. So one more reason vaginal estrogen is helpful. And like I've said before on this podcast, vaginal estrogen has not been shown to increase the risk of breast cancer. Um, It also doesn't increase the risk of breast cancer recurrence, which is a common misconception. So vaginal estrogen can be really, really helpful. So for all of our listeners who are just now learning about this, hopefully they're not terrified uh, and we haven't scared them, but what can they do if they're not currently having symptoms to prevent incontinence? Is there anything they should think about, you know, when they're getting ready to have a baby or? Sure. In terms of having a baby and that peri... Peripartum? <laughs> yes. Uh, so immediately after, um, po- immediately in the postpartum period, there have been a lot of studies that look at the role of physical therapy, actually, or Kegels during that time. And unfortunately, there does there is no difference um, for women that ha- go through the physical therapy versus women that do not. I think it really more has to do with women that have experience uh, very long labors, uh, trauma um, during that labor, so you know significant tearing or delivering very large babies too can all cause um, a lot of the pelvic floor dysfunction. Unfortunately, we can't necessarily prevent that, but those can be also risk factors for us to be aware of. And then in terms of overactivity, uh, things that you can prevent are, you know, trying to avoid those uh, those foods and drinks that I had mentioned that that irritate the bladder. So, you know, we all love co- everyone loves coffee and caffeine, but of course that can make us run to the bathroom. Uh, so you don't necessarily need your um, 3 p.m. cappuccino, um, or just try to, you know, just maybe just cut down on, you know, your spicy food intake or your caffeine intake um, can be super helpful. Yeah, I don't think now that I live in Miami, I would be able to function without my 3 p.m. cafecito, so we're going to have to (laughs) table that one. (laughs) That's super interesting, and I'm so glad that you were able to give everyone an overview. Let's talk a little bit about a controversial topic related to this. So maybe some of our listeners have heard about the controversy related to vaginal mesh. Does that have anything to do with this? And, And maybe you can explain that to our listeners. Sure, that's a great question. So, like I had mentioned, so mesh slings are still used uh, for the treatment of stress urinary incontinence. It's actually still the gold standard for how we treat stress incontinence. And, you know, in general, mesh, it's a porous graft material that is permanent, but it's thought to be integrated into our own tissues to help create support. And a lot of this controversy has, has come from the FDA warnings um, that were started in 2011. You know, the FDA warnings um, consisted of a ban of large sheets of mesh that were placed through the vagina for prolapse repairs. So vaginal prolapse means that uh, when the muscles are weakened in the bladder or the uterus can herniate down towards the opening, opening of the vagina. That being said, we no longer use large sheets of mesh in the vagina because the vagina, again, 
because of the changes in estrogen and as we get older the tissue becomes very thin and that that's where a lot of women are running into problems when a large sheets of mesh were placed in that thin vaginal wall however uh, we still use mesh um, in mesh slings because it's a very thin piece of tape and it's less surface area that it's touching the vaginal wall and it does cause and therefore it causes less, um, less issues they're, they're still there but it's about one to two percent of women that have uh, mesh slings experience those mesh complications and that could be anywhere from uh, pain during sex or any, if the mesh is not well accepted into your tissue, it can extrude or expel outside of the vagina. You can feel those mesh fibers sometimes. Um, but those are just a couple of the examples. But the nice thing about the mesh sling is that it is super durable because mesh is permanent. So women really do like it because it, um, it can really treat your urinary incontinence for up to 20 years. Um, so that's why it is still so popular and I, and I perform mesh slings every week still. Yeah, so to summarize, the mesh slings that you use now for the stress urinary incontinence patients, also known as transvaginal tape or transurethral tape, those products are not the same that the FDA based their recommendations off of, even though Correct. we both call, even though we call both of them mesh, because the transurethral tape or the sling mesh is a lot smaller than the large sheets of mesh they would place in the vagina that there were a lot of complications for, right? Yes, that's exactly hit the nail on the head, yes. Perfect. So let's think of a couple other common questions that patients might have. So like, what is a normal number of times to pee during the day? Mm, that's a great question. So, you know, it depends, again, how much liquids you're drinking. But I think that, you know, a normal person, if they go to the bathroom, if they can hold it, you know, two to three hours, up to four hours, that's totally normal. But it really, you know, all these things have to do with uh, your individual quality of life and how bothered you are. So some women, you know, they go to the bathroom every hour, but, you know, they're not very bothered. But other women go to the bathroom every 30 minutes, and obviously that can be very stressful and bothersome. So, you know, during the day, I think being able to hold urine um, three, three, three hours or so is, is normal, I guess could be normal. But, and then of course, you know, nighttime urination is also always a question. So uh, getting up either not at all or getting up uh, one time a night seems reasonable. Or, you know, some women really do experience a lot of frequent urination at night and to have to get up multiple times a night, but it really just depends on how bothered you are um, by, by that frequency. Can holding your bladder for a really long time be bad for you? You know, I often think about this when we're in the OR for a long period of time, and mm -hmm. I'm sure patients have thought about this too, so does that impact any of this? So actually, no, it does not. So it Good actually Im impacts uh, more <laughs> so it, it impacts uh, children and, um, you know, those behavioral, uh, you know, uh, changes, um, you know, with the bladder bowel dysfunction in, in pediatric patients and children. But as adults, it does not really affect us. I mean, uh, of course, we want to make sure that we're staying hydrated. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's always important to drink enough fluids that you don't see very concentrated urine. A normal bladder does hold about 400 cc's of urine, so and that that's equivalent to about a little bit more of a, like a can of Coke. So if you're holding, you know, twice that, that amount, then of course, you know, your bladder may stretch out, but if you're doing that 
just once in a while, like you're in the operating room, um, like Dr. Rojas had just mentioned, um, but obviously we don't want to do it, um, you know, hold um, urine for a very long time every day. Well, this has all been super informative. Thank you so much for all of your expertise. And just for all of our listeners to know, you work here with me at University of Miami in Miami, Florida. So any of you that are listening in the South Florida area who want to come see Dr. Amin, she is ready to see you. You can also follow her on social media at Catherine Amin, MD. That's K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E. A-M-I-N-M-D, where she posts updates and interesting information about all of the different conditions that she treats. And hopefully I never have to be your patient, but it's good knowing that you're around in case I need you. (laughs) And don't be embarrassed if you are my patient. I am happy to see all women of all ages uh, because, again, like I said, this is quite common. And, um, you know, I encourage you to see a specialist if you do suffer from urinary incontinence because there, there are so many options out there that we can give you to help. So for those patients who want to be referred to you, what do they need to say to their primary care doctors or their gynecologists? So I would just, you know, have a frank conversation with your primary care doctor or your, your or your gynecologist at your pap smear visits. But, you know, just explaining, you know, your urinary incontinence or leakage and, you know, how, the degree of bother for you, you know, how bothered you are by that. And then should they ask to be referred to a urogynecologist or a urologist? Because both of those subspecialties treat these conditions, right? Right. So you can ask to be seen by a female urologist or a urogynecologist. Thank you so much, Dr. Amin, for joining us and sharing all of your expertise with our listeners. It was a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really uh, enjoyed speaking about this. Perfect. I'll certainly have you back to talk about pelvic organ prolapse, which is another really important topic. So until next time. As a reminder, all information, content, material for this website and podcast is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, or medical treatment of a qualified physician or your own healthcare provider. The information contained in this podcast is not intended to recommend the self-management of health problems or wellness. It's not intended to endorse or recommend any particular type of medical treatment. And should you, the listener, have any healthcare-related questions specific to your own pregnancy or gynecologic health, promptly call or consult your physician or your own health Healthcare provider. I have no relevant financial conflicts of interest to disclose, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Kristen Rojas MD. That's at K R I S T I N R O J A S M D. For any questions or comments, you can email me at realwomenshealth at gmail.com. Don't forget to like or rate our podcast and share it with your friends. Stay safe, everyone.